today we're going to be in 1 John. And I wanted to start off, this is a, a maybe it's a bit of a, 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 a tag on to last week where we talked about raising kids that follow Jesus. Um, there's an old phrase that says, it's very easy to teach kids virtue. It's very hard to make virtue attractive. It does no good if our children uh, know they need to obey the law or need to follow Jesus. It does no good if they do not love it, if they do not want to obey the law. And so one of the ways that we found that that works in our family, and, and I've learned from old guys, is reading stories. Is reading stories about biblical truth. Um, this book is called The Lightlings. It was written by a man named R.C. Sproul, who has taught seminary classes years over for a long time. And then, as a grandpa, decided to write kids' books for his grandkids. And so this book is called The Lightlings. And it is a biblical story of salvation in an allegorical tale. It, it talks about these people called the Lightlings. Um, Charlie Cobb goes to his mom and he says, Mom, why am I afraid of the dark? His mom, not really knowing what to say, says, why don't we talk to Grandpa tomorrow? So Grandpa comes tomorrow, and he says, Grandpa, why am I afraid of the dark? And Grandpa, being very old and wise, said, you know, there's a lot of people that are afraid of the light. And Charlie was aghast. Why would anyone be afraid of the light, Grandpa? And so Grandpa goes in to tell this story um, of a race of tiny beings known as the lightlings. They were created to worship the king of light. But as they represent humanity, they fell away from God. They rebelled against God, uh, their king of light, and ran into the darkness and lived in that darkness, cutting, on, uh, cutting their legs when they would fall and trip over things that they couldn't see because it was dark, because they ran from the king of light. And so we follow the lightlings as they pass through all the stages of this biblical drama, creation, fall, redemption, and in the end, restoration. And the children learn about atonement. They learn giant theological words like sanctification and atonement, but they learn it through story and narrative, and thus they learn to love virtue. And, and they will really only love virtue if God saves them, but they learn to love virtue from their heart um, by seeing stories that describe and penetrate um, and work a little bit better than maybe a systematic theology for five-year-olds. Wouldn't work very well. So I, I just want to highly recommend um, R.C. Sproul's book, especially if you have kids ages like 4, 3 to like 10 or 12. Um, they're great books. He has several of them. Go, go check them out. But that is what we're going to be talking about today. Light. The king of light and the mission of the lightlings. How we were created to enjoy light, yet because of our sin, now hate the light and are afraid of the light and run headlong into terrible darkness. So, with that uh, rising thing, uh, stand, please, with me as we read God's Word. This is 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. These are the words of God. Uh, you may be seated, and then we will pray. Father God, thank you for being light. Thank you for showing us the way. Uh, we ask today that you would be with those who are hurting. Father, we know that there are many who are sick and hurting in our, in our church. 
in our body. We ask it for healing for them. We ask for encouragement and endurance during their suffering, that they would, Father, lean into you, that they would rest in you in their suffering and trust in you, knowing that we have a good place coming where there will be no suffering. Father, we also praise you for um, the Ferguson's new baby. Um, we, we praise you for that little life, God. We, we praise you that they are part of our church, and we praise you um, that they have a baby. We also praise you for the, the Pastranas and that they are, fine, they, are, they are pregnant. They get to have a child as well. So we ask for healthy pregnancies for everyone in our church who has babies. I know there are more and more every day. Um, so thank you for that. We pray for healthy pregnancies, and we ask that we would all, in the fear of you, reach old age, eager for rest with you. Amen. So... Oh, you may be, oh, you are sitting. I said that. All right. So God is light. Uh, Very clearly. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Actually, that might be the first Bible verse my daughter ever memorized because it's the beginning of that book. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The figure of light is often used in scriptures to describe what is good, what is righteous, what is true. Light in the Bible um, talks about moral purity. If something is light, it is, it is the epitome of what is pure and perfect. And when there is darkness, it is seen as being impure. It is seen as being dirty. It is seen as being not complete. Um, the statement, God is light, has been interpreted different ways. Um, first, it could be a description of the visible manifestation of God's glory. Second, some people have seen this as a statement of reference to God's self-revelation to man. Light enables us to see. Uh, These first two options, reference to God's self-revelation to man and enabling us to see, are are true, but contextually, in the the passage, I, I, I don't think this is exactly what John is getting at. Most likely, this phrase refers to the moral perfection of God. There is not one blemish, stain, Mark or sin on the character of God. God is absolute perfection. Now, this may seem redundant and simple to us today. But at the time, in a world where pagan gods often displayed their fury against humanity and against the other gods, it was revolutionary. It was astounding. It it often felt new that God was perfect. And so, John says God is light. John, by the way, is the, um, was one of the twelve disciples. He is the one who wrote the book of John. And then he went on late in his life, um, after the Christians had all left Jerusalem, John went on to write three letters, generally to the church. He, read, he wrote them and sent them out to a lot of different churches to get them out, to know about Jesus. And if you read through the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, while you're reading the book of John, these similarities are in, insane. It is so fun to see how consistent and human and and true what God says about, what John says about Jesus in his letters and in his account of Jesus here on earth. So John is writing this, and he's writing this to tell us that God is like, God is morally perfect. There is not a blemish in God. The sun, even in our own day, as we look out and see the sun with a telescope and those magic things that allow you to not be blind, You can see dark spots on the sun. Even the sun is not as perfectly light as God. God is absolutely holy and pure. 
This interpretation that that is what we mean when God is light and in Him is no darkness at all is supported by two things. There is no, in the Greek, article before light. So it is not God is a light. It doesn't say God is the light. God has light. The Greek text stresses the character and nature of God as being light. Secondly, God is, in the rest of Scripture, described as light. He is described as pure. As, as being morally holy. Um, the, the statement, in him is no darkness at all, is contrasted with the perfection of light. Darkness is not perfect. It is not meant to be um, holy. Darkness is, is the antithesis to holiness. And light is that moral perfection. Um, this is important as we read through this passage, um, this short a, a part of this letter, because in this letter, John talks a lot about contrasts, light and dark, walking in light, walking in darkness, um, admitting our faults, hiding our faults. Um, those are the, the three big contrasts that he goes through and talks about when he's comparing things. And this, this sets it all up. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's this statement. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then there's a therefore, those little three dots. Therefore, the rest of the passage. John is setting us up to to learn that because God is light, as Christians and non-Christians, we have a response. Um, So we read God is light. Now, what is the light for? The light in life reveals things. If something is hidden... There is no light on it. When you're searching for something, you shine a light to find it. What happens? Well, obviously you find it, and it's always in the last place you look, which that is a ridiculous statement, because why would you keep looking after you found it? So, of course, it's in the last place you look. Um, But, right? Okay, sorry. So, you shine a light on something, and it reveals what is there. You see it clearly. So, God is light. Well, part of that, what means is that he is morally perfect and he reveals to us that we are not. The point of darkness is to hide things. The purpose of light is to reveal things. And now in this, light and darkness both reveal our fellowship. So when God in his lightness, his perfection, um, shows us our sin, we respond in one of two ways. Christians should respond by repenting of that sin and turning back to God. And non-Christians, though they should respond that way, um, return and reject God. They embrace the darkness even more. Proverbs 28.13 says, No one who conceals transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. No one who conceals transgressions will prosper. But one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So why, as Christians, do we run from confession of sin? We must walk in the light. Verse 6 says, If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we're talking about Christians. If we have fellowship with God, which we have through Christ, and we walk in darkness, and our walk does not match what we say, We lie and do not practice the truth. Well, then who would be able to ever walk? Because we all sin. Just because Jesus died for us and we repent of our sin and he has cleansed us from that sin and we stand justified before God does not mean that we do not continue to have sin. It actually means that we now can fight that sin. 
So the Christian is not the person who is morally perfect. The Christian is the perfect who is morally repentant and knows they need God. So why do we run from this confession of sin? Well, simple. We do not like to repent. We do not like to admit that we are wrong. We do not like to be responsible to anyone else other than me. If I do not repent, I live in a world that I am not responsible to anyone else. And that is a world that I can control. That is the world where I am in charge. That is the world that I get to define. And that, to us, seems better. But we know in these verses that when we walk in darkness, it also tells us something about our fellowship. We have fellowship with darkness. That would be Satan, demons, our own sin, and the world as it is passing away. Um, Our fellowship in that is broken with God, hence we go into this fellowship with darkness, And it's broken with other people as well. So we have a brokenness here and then a brokenness here as well. That's why when we talk with our kids uh, about repenting of their sin, we talk about confess your sin to Father God, admit you did it, and then go and can repent to your brother as well. Confess your sin to your brother. Ask for his forgiveness as well. Because sin affects here and it affects here equally. Both fellowships are broken because of sin. Thus, we are alone. We have no fellowship. Thankfully, as we repent of our sins, we can be restored in Jesus through this fellowship and also in this fellowship. I I would like to submit to you that Christians can be better friends with one another than non-Christians because we're consistently repenting of our sin to one another, which draws us closer to one another. So, in this passage, we have the first one, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. You'll have that memorized by the end of the sermon. And then the second one, we have a a walk in light. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's another contrast. We walk in darkness or we walk in light. Now, John Piper puts it this way. He said, walking in the light means living under the controlling desire for God instead of the world. The kind of life you live if you see things the way God sees them and shares his value. Walk means life. Walk is uh, is a term that means who you are as you go through life. Um, Does it mean that we are cleansed? What, What does it mean to be cleansed from our blood, the blood of Jesus, of all our sin? So we walk in the light. So we are pursuing Christ. We are trying to, to walk after him as much as we are able. Um, but In that, the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So then why, obviously, that means we just don't have sin anymore, right? We're cleansed from our sin. No more sin. So Christians, in in John's day, were saying, Oh, well then I'm sinful. I'm not sinful. I'm sinless. I've been forgiven for my sins, therefore I do not sin anymore. I do not have sin. Um, John is coming up against them and saying that is absolutely not true. Partly, I'm sure, from his own experience, even having literally walked with Jesus, um, all 12 of the disciples continued to sin. Now, they did not continue in sin, but they did continue to sin. So, um, Piper expands on this a little more. He says, does it mean that we, when we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus keeps us from sinning? Or does it mean that as we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus covers and nullifies our sinning? In other words, does this refer to um, an ongoing justification or sanctification? Justification, meaning you are justified before God once, 
Sanctification, meaning we are continually enjoying that justification. We are continually repenting of our sin, believing in the truth. Repenting of our sin, believing in the truth. We're going to talk more about justification here in a minute. But um, what, what this means is that Christ came not merely to cover our sin, but to conquer it. He came to justify us before God and then begin to make us pure before God. It is an ongoing effect of Christ's blood to cleanse our heart. Hebrews 9, 9.14 says, The blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is a moral effect of Christ's blood applied to us on our behalf. This progressive work in the believer's heart. This ongoingness of uh, the gospel working out in our lives. Philippians says, and God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we have hope. If you are a Christian, you have hope that you will be complete at the day of Jesus Christ. When the Lord returns to wed his bride, we will be complete. There's a hopefulness in that. There's a hopefulness that can help us as we continually deal with sin in our own life and the effects of sin in our life. We can, we can believe and have hope and stand on that truth that God is making us better. That God is making us pure. And we do that in a relationship that is completely pure. It's a lot like marriage. You often, I often, no, I won't put that on you. Let's just start with me. I find that I am way more sinful against my wife than anyone else. It is way easier for me to control my sin when I'm talking with people I don't know than with my wife. But, and now that is, that is terrible. That is, that is bad, right? But in some way, there's a safetyness in that marriage that allows us, not allows us to sin, but allows us to repent of sin freely. God does not encourage us to sin ever. But in that relationship with your husband and wife, you can be who you are. Now, part of that is laziness. We should treat our spouse better than anyone else on the planet. But also, part of it is they see our sin more clearly than anyone else. Um, There's this thing called the Jahari window. My dad and I were talking about it last night. Um, Kids, if you're in here in the service, eventually you reach a phase where you want to talk to your parents again. It's like ages 0 through 10, you you love them. And then 10 through like 20, 25, you hate them. And then as I get older, I just, I love talking to my dad. I don't don't know what it is. So we just talk. Um, so anyway, I was talking to my dad last night and we were talking a little bit about this sermon and this passage and this Jahari window came to mind. Now the Jahari window was this thing created by a guy named Joe Jahari. I don't know what his first name was, Jahari. And it was a square. And so it's a logic puzzle. And so the first line of the logic puzzle is things I see and things I don't see in the second line. And then the two columns are things others see and things others don't see. And so you have four squares, and they all overlap. The first square is things I see and things others see. And then this square is things I see but things others do not see, so sin I hide. And then this one up here is sin that I commit that others see that I don't even know about. And then this last one is things no one sees except God. And so the way this relates to sanctification is it allows us to, um, encourages us to evaluate our lives and see, is there sin I need to confess? Is there sin that I see in someone else that they need to confess? And so we confront one another. 
We uh, come to our, our leaders and repent of our sin. We come to our spouse and we repent of our sin and find healing in that. There's a sanctification that goes on with active repentance of our sin. And that, that in my own life, that Jahari window has really helped and reminded me to continually be asking my wife, is there sin that I don't see that you see? And then maybe once a year I'll tell her there's sin that I see in her life that she doesn't see. Um, the nearest place of evidence for this is in the next verse, is in verse 9, a few places later. The, the evidence that our sin is um, covered by God and being covered by God. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in verse 7, sin is cleansed, and in verse 9, sin is forgiven. The condition for cleansing in verse 7 is walking in the light. Jesus saves us, we begin to walk in the light, and we confess our sin, and he cleanses us. Now, if we walk in the light, we are cleansed from sin. If walking in the light meant perfection, then there would be no need for cleansing of sin if you're walking in the light. Does that make sense? So you are saved and justified and secure, but in that, you can repent to your Savior. You can repent to Father God and find forgiveness um, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because it's a safe relationship. We're safe in that justification. And so we can enjoy, to a degree, enjoy repenting of our sin and becoming more like Jesus. Walking in the light means seeing things the way God sees them and responding the way he does or wants us to. Um, someday, when Jesus returns, the process of sanctification will be complete. And we will at last have been cleansed from all sin as we walk in the light. But in the end, it is simply not up to us to decide whether that, that the gospel is a kind of good news that we would like it to be or simply good news that is. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun for me to tell you, Christian, repent of your sin daily. Christian, repent of your sin daily. But that's God's prescription. That's God's command. If we live like we are, sin, are sinless, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Now, this last section. Okay, so we talked about God is light. Now we must walk in the light. And the third one is keep returning to the light. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, in your Bibles, look at those three verses real quick. Paul, uh, I keep saying Paul. John, John sandwiches this. If we confess our sins, he sandwiches verse 9 with verse 8 and verse 10. If we say we have no sin... If we say we have not sinned, we do two things. The truth, we deceive ourselves, which shows that the truth is not in us. And we make God a liar and his word is not in us. That's called blasphemy, making God a liar, um, saying something untrue about God. Disagreeing with God is called blasphemy. We actually do it a lot more than I think we think we do. I know I do. And so we must joyfully repent. Side trail, coming back. He says this twice. He sandwiches this because it is a temptation of us to believe that we are not sinning when in reality we are sinning constantly. It is a grace of God. I think J.I. Packer said it is the grace of God to not show us how sinful we are all at once. He gives us a lifetime to realize it 
so that we can slowly, continually be molded into who he wants us to be as we repent of that sin. I'm convinced that if God showed us me how sinful I was, I would just die. I would just have a heart attack. I, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, the, the, the Bible, not the Bible, J.I. Packer says um, that there, you can never underestimate how sinful you are. Overestimate. J.I. Packer says you can never overestimate how sinful you are. Spurgeon, likewise, said, if, if a man insults you, keep your mouth shut, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If a man insults you, keep your mouth shut, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. See, living as a Christian is returning to the light. It is, invo- it is humility. It is us realizing that we need God, not once for salvation, daily for salvation, daily forever. All throughout the New Testament, the, the, the writers warn, endure until the end. Endure until the end. Stick with God till the end. Fight the fight until the end. Hold the faith. Finish the race. Why? Because we can lose our salvation? Absolutely not. You are secure in that justification. Why do they warn us then? Fight till the end. Hold till the end. Endure until the end. Because that is how we become more like Christ. God uses that journey, life, to get us to the goal of becoming pure. Sanctification. Now, he sandwiches this because we're tempted to believe we're not in sin. And, man, we talk about sin a lot at New City. And I'm saying that with a smile. We, we talk about sin at a lot of new cities. So let me define it for you. Now, I'm doing it this again because I've made a case that it's absolutely in this passage that we need to repent of our sin. But let me define sin for us. It is hamartia, which is a, a noun or a part. It means a share of and no share of. Hamartia means no share of, a loss. It means missing the mark. God set up a mark and we all missed it. God set up a law, we all broke it. We all deserve God's wrath for breaking even the smallest of his laws, of his will. God's law tells us about his character, about who he is and who we, he wants us to be. Not how we can be there. That's in the gospel. That's the grace of truth. But who he is and how we can have good relationship with one another. And we have all broken that. We have all broken that. It's very, very peaceful to realize that we're all sinners. I'm not standing up here on a pulpit because I have less sin than you. Absolutely not. Ask my wife. Ask the other pastors. Ask my dad. We are not grown and given a responsibility for mission for our own glory. It is through repentance and belief and humility that God grows his gospel in us and out through and out the world. Sin, everyone, sin is everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawless. This is 1 John, later in the same letter, 1 John 3. Sin is lawlessness. It is a rejection of God and embracing self-rule. Therefore, sin always leads to chaos, because we make terrible self-rulers. Sin leads to chaos. Righteousness is harmony and is peace. For uh, Romans says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And we know that God gives faith and God does not tempt anyone to sin. Therefore, anything not of faith is of sin. Now, 
Why do we talk about sin so much? Because sin is always the problem. Because sin is always the problem. Sin separates. Nothing can be whole without sin because it is at the core of our rebellion against God. And it has caused all problems throughout humanity. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, we are all born in sin and choose to sin. Now that's terrible, right? That's not very joyful. So, so where's the joy? Why are we as Christians excited to come to Christ with our sin? Because he cleanses it from us. He promises in this verse to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we hide our sin and don't tell anyone about it and always show up at church with a happy smile and make sure that things are okay. No. As we confess our sin. Everyone knows your sin already. Then that box up here where they see your sin and you don't, confess it. Confessing sin is just admitting what God already knows is true about us. We do this in a catechism at our house when we give consequences for sin. We ask them, why do consequences hurt? And the answer is because sin leads to death. This consequence, regardless of how you choose to give a consequence to a child for sin, it always leads to death. It must include some sort of emotional pain for them. And when they're very, very young, and in the younger years, some physical pain. Because sin is death. Sin leads to death. And so when our children sin, we need to encourage them to turn away off that path. Pray to Jesus to give you hope to turn you off that path. Ask Jesus, dear son, dear daughter, to give you strength to say no to sin next time. I will always love you no matter how much you sin. I'm giving you a consequence because the sting of sin is death. The sting of sin is death. And we need to teach our kids that. And then we also tell them, how do we find life? What is the concept? Well, why do consequences hurt? Because sin leads to death. How do we find life? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. My wife actually made it into a song. <laughs> repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. And, and we do that with the kids. We, we sing that with them. We make joyful noise when they repent. I throw Asa up in the air when he repents. I want him to know that repentance brings joy and good fellowship with everyone they're in relationship with and with God. Repent, repent. You can, you, that's not copyrighted. You're welcome to use it. Um, and probably sing it better. Returning to the light. Keep returning to the light. If we say we have no sin, if we say we have not sinned, we are living a lie. We are living in self-deception. Saying we do not sin is troublesome because it is self-deception at its finest. It's so slippery to say I'm not sinning in this area. Especially when someone calls you on it like your spouse. Hey, I think this might be sin. No, no, no. It's just a mistake. Mm, that's not how God defines mistakes. God defines sin as things that we do against his will. A mistake is like tripping over a Lego. That's a mistake. A sin is something I've done against God and needs to be repented of. A mistake is an immaturity in a child where they just color outside the lines. That's a mistake. Sin is holy unrighteousness against God. Sin is cosmic, what does R.C. Sproul say? Sin is cosmic rebellion against God. So we talk about sin because it is at the root of all problems. And we love you. And we want you to love one another. And we want you to know God's love for you. And so we talk about sin. But we also 
also, also talk about hope. Talk about the gospel. The nature of, of us as humans is to, to weigh down one of the two very much. Much more than we should. We, we, we stick in our sin and we get depressed and sad. Or we ignore our sin and just remember all the forgiveness God has for me and therefore make sin not that big of a deal. If sin's not a big deal, then Jesus' work on the cross didn't do very much for you. If sin really isn't that problematic for Christians, then Jesus didn't really need to completely die. He may have just fainted to take care of that sin because it wasn't that big of a deal. Sin is cosmic rebellion against God. And in this, as we keep returning to the light, as we confess our sin, Jesus is making us pure. Sanctification, God making us pure. I think I wrote like pure. That's not it. Sanctification is God making us pure. Purification. Who he intended us to be before sin. And so Jesus actually has a lot to say about sanctification. He prays for us in John 17. And he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And this is his request. Sanctify them in truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. In Christian theology, sanctification is the state of separation between us and God. All believers enter into that state when they are born of God. Oh, sorry, separation unto God. So we are cleaved to one another in marriage. Sanctification is God cleaving us to him as his bride, as his church. And so sanctification is God showing us our sin, repenting of our sin, and believing the truth about that sin. Um, in, in the past, God granted justification once for all, holiness in Christ. Now, God guides us in maturity, a practical, progressive holiness that he accomplishes in you. You cannot <clears throat> your sin out. You cannot <clears throat> through your sin. It is only through Jesus that sin meets its death. The world says that the way to the top is to never admit fault. To keep girding through. God says, you are strong when you are weak. Your weakness is your strength. Repent of sin and believe God's truth in Jesus. I'm just going to read the verse again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our hope. God is working. If we confess our sins, admit it. Just admit what we already know. Your kids know you sin. Believe it or not. As much as they look up to you, they know your sin. Carlson kids, am I right? You know your parents' sin. And in that, you learn how to repent. I didn't mean to call you out. You're just the only kids over there. The Carlson kids are learning how to be Christians because they're watching Aaron and Kristen repent of their sin. Hopefully, our children are learning how to be Christians as they watch us repent of our sin. It is no small thing to get on your knees and show your five-year-old daughter who looks at you like you made the world and tell her you're sinful. <laughs> it, it, is, it is, I mean, that's, the, it, that's a hard thing to do that, to repent in front of your kids. Very hard. But if we don't do it, they never will. If they don't see mom and dad doing it, they're never going to do it. And we are making God a liar to our children. And his word is not in us. So, to claim um, 
to be without sin is self-deception. And when we show that to our kids that we are without sin by our actions and by our words, we are deceiving them and setting them up to failure because they will never know what to do then when they sin. We must show them how to repent. We must show them how to believe and show them the joy of it. How good mommy and daddy have it once we've repented of our sin to one another. We know they hear us at night when we argue. Tell them in the morning that we made it better, that we repented. Show them how joyful your relationship is and the joy that comes from repenting. We like to talk to ourselves about ourselves as new creatures in Christ. Um, and we are new creatures in Christ. But our newness consists not in how great we are, but in the true light is shining in our hearts, revealing the dreadfulness of the remaining sin in my heart and giving the abundance of God's grace to still die, have died for me. To still have died for me. Even though I know there is more sin to be repented of, Jesus still died for me. The mark of a new creature in Christ is not a very cheerful, wonderful self-esteem. The mark of a true, true creature in Christ is brokenness for the remaining sin mixed with a joyful confidence in God's abounding grace to still love us and still have died for us. We confess and we come into the light. We hide, we stay in the dark. Very practically, we do communion every week. The body broken for you, the blood spilled for you, and the juice and the wine. We do this so we can confess our sins. It's a, it's a weekly reminder of what we should be doing daily. Admitting our sin before God. And finding hope and peace in His blood having atoned for that sin. So we're going to have communion today. Celebrate with us. Come, if you are a believer, celebrate communion. Let's pray. Father God. Oh man, I'd be so lost You know I sin. I forget it often. I act like I'm not prone to sin. Please forgive us. Father, as we go out this week, we would ask that you work in us. Father, just, just simply show us our sin that we may repent and be free from it. We know life works better your way. We know life, we have peace in life when we fight sin. Your superior firepower has already broken down the sting of sin, which is death. And as Christians, we will not taste death because you tasted it for us. May we walk in that peace and hope this week. And would you grow us closer in our families, in our friends, in our city groups, um, and in our church. Knit us together around you, Jesus, and the hope that you give us in you. Amen.